Our our Bible reading tonight is taken from the book of Acts. If you want to turn uh, to the book of Acts, and we're reading from verse 36, Acts uh, chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, sorry, and verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Amen. And we know God will always bless the reading of his word. Now, would you turn, please, to the passage that we read together in Acts chapter 2. This evening is a baptismal service. And uh, as I said, if you're visiting with us, you're, you're very welcome I know that friends and family members are present of John Lewis and Katie uh, as they take this important step in their Christian life. Now, it's a happy coincidence that last Sunday we began a series of sermons on the church. And what I want to do this evening is simply to tie in with that series and from Acts 2 consider the first expression that we have recorded for us in the New Testament of a church. People spend their lives looking for a perfect church, and of course there is no such thing as a perfect church because the church is comprised of people, and wherever you have people, you will have problems. But in Acts chapter 2, we have the Garden of Eden as far as the church is concerned. And there in its infancy, we have a, a wonderful description of what the church is and what the church should be. And the first thing I want you to notice from the passage is that it was a gathered church. Now, the word gathered is a theological term, and it means that the church was made up of Christians. Now, that might seem pretty obvious that the church is made up of Christians, but after uh, 2,000 years of tradition, it's not always practiced in every church. The word church is the Greek word ecclesia, which means called out ones. And it's those, the church is made up of those who have been called out of the world and called to faith in Jesus. And we see that graphically illustrated in Acts chapter 2. From verses 14 to 36, Peter, in the first recorded sermon, 
set out uh, the great truths about Jesus Christ, his identity, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension into glory. And he ends that sermon with the words in verse 36, let the house of Israel, uh, remember it's the day of Pentecost, he's preaching to Jews who had gathered in Jerusalem for Passover and Pentecost from all over the known world. Let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And the people, we're told in verse 37, were cut to the heart. The authorized version says they were pierced in their heart. They had crucified the promised Messiah, the one who was promised in the Old Testament, the one who they looked for, longed for, and waited for, for centuries. And that crime that they were charged with struck them to their heart. They had crucified the Messiah. They had nailed him to the cross. The thought was unthinkable. The deed was detestable. The crime was reprehensible. And they are cut to the heart. That's what the Bible elsewhere calls conviction. It's, it's more than just feeling remorse. It's the work of the Holy Spirit upon the human heart that exposes our waywardness. And what God sometimes does in our experiences, he comes and he puts his finger on one particular sin, and he drives that sin home to our conscience in order to show the sinfulness of sin in, in general. And this, this crime of crucifying the Messiah cut them deeply, cut them to the heart. Do you, do you know that kind of conviction? Have you experienced that kind of conviction? The uh, charge of Jeremiah in the Old Testament uh, against Israel was that they had forgotten how to blush, that they felt no consciousness of their, their sin. But when God comes and works upon the human heart, the first manifestation of his work is conviction of sin. And so they, they uh, turn to Peter and the apostles and they say in verse 37, brothers, what shall we do? And in verse 38, Peter says, uh, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He says there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness av available. The, the slate can be wiped clean. The sin can be taken away if you repent and if you believe the gospel. And we're told that they repented. Repented means that uh, literally that you turn away. It means to turn away from sin. And if you turn away from sin, you turn to Jesus Christ. And you'll notice there in verses uh, 40 and 41, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And notice verse 41, So those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. It was those who received the word, who accepted the message, who responded to this call to repentance and to faith in Jesus, that they were baptized and they were added to the church. Notice verse 31, for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, uh, everyone whom the Lord your God 
calls to himself. So he's preaching primarily to a Jewish audience, and he says, no, God hasn't cast you off. He hasn't abandoned you because of your crime in crucifying the Messiah. He is saying the promise is still to you and your children and to those who are far off, Gentiles who are still in darkness and who have never heard the gospel of redeeming grace. The the gospel is for both. The promise is for both to everyone. And here's the qualifying statement, to everyone, the Lord your God shall call. So in in the New Testament, we have the, the general call Uh, of the gospel. It goes out to everyone. We preach the gospel freely, but there is the effectual call. There is the inward call where God, by His Spirit, calls an individual to faith in Jesus, calls them out of darkness into light. And so this, this promise of forgiveness, this promise of the Holy Spirit is given to all the Lord calls. Have you heard that call? Have you heard that gospel call? Have you responded to that gospel call? Have you put your faith and trust? Have you acknowledged your sin, uh, turned from that sin, and turned to faith and trust in Jesus Christ? That's what makes a Christian. And what I, what I simply want to say is that the church was made up of such people. People who had come to faith in the living God. Our constitution states the church membership shall be uh, composed of those who profess repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? The church was made up of Christians. It's interesting to me that um, when... uh, Saul tried to join the church in Jerusalem. They said, no thanks. We don't want you. They were, they were hesitant to bring him into membership, this arch persecutor of the church. Why were they hesitant to bring him into membership? Because of his track record. And it was only when Barnabas intervened that he was actually admitted into the membership. So the church in Acts 2 was a gathered church. My Of course we make mistakes. You might say to me, can you guarantee that everybody in Balamina Baptist Church is a true Christian? No, I can't guarantee that. But the point is, all profess to be true Christians and all have shared their testimonies with the elders and with the church when they, they come into the membership of the church. But be assured of this, that when it comes to heaven, when it comes to the church of the firstborn, and when it comes to admission into heaven, there will be no mistakes. No mistakes. It will only be those who have experienced the forgiveness of God after repenting and believing the gospel that will be admitted there. It was a gathered church. Secondly, it was a a baptized church. Now look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Now, some people come to this and say, well, there you have it, that you need to be baptized in order to be a Christian. But you see, that would be, would contradict the rest of the New Testament teaching. In Acts 10, 
when Peter preaches to Cornelius's household, the Holy Spirit falls in dramatic form upon the, the Gentiles. And so they're converted. And Peter says, can anyone keep these people from being baptized because they have received the Holy Spirit just as you and I have? In other words, they were converted before they were baptized. And they were baptized on profession of that faith. And so what Peter is saying here, remember there, he charges the Jews with the crimes of crucifying uh, the Messiah. And he says, in order to be truly converted, you need, to, you need to repent and you need to identify yourself with Jesus Christ. You need to be baptized in his name. So baptism isn't necessary for salvation. It is a consequence of salvation. So that verse in Scripture that we know, Romans 10 and 9, so well, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You're not saved because you confess, but confession is part of that salvation uh, experience that when you come to faith, you cannot keep it quiet. You want to publicly declare to the world uh, as to your, your faith and uh, your salvation. Now, that's uh, further borne out in verse 41. Look at verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So one or two important points need to be made here. They were baptized after they accepted the message. Do you see that? They were baptized after they accepted the, the message, and they were baptized before they became church members. They were baptized after they accepted the message, and they were baptized before they became church members. Now, the second point is not controversial at all. Most Christian churches require baptism for membership. If you wanted to join the Presbyterian Church, you would have to be baptized. If you wanted to join the Church of Ireland Church, you would have to be baptized. If you wanted to join the Methodist Church, you would have to be baptized. If you wanted to join the Catholic Church, you would have to be baptized. And we're no different on that issue. We view baptism as the gate through which you enter the church. And so it's required of all members to be baptized. The first point is a little more controversial, that baptism was administered to those who had accepted the message. In Acts 2, they baptized people after they became Christians. Baptism doesn't make you a Christian. It isn't a promise that you will become a Christian. It's a declaration that you are a Christian. I emphasize to people again and again that we don't believe in adult baptism. That's a slur that I reject. We believe in believer's baptism. That's the qualification. Now, there are basically three views of baptism. That it's a saving ordinance, that you need to be baptized in order uh, to be a Christian. Well, the great answer to that is the dying thief on the cross who uh, Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. And he never received any of the ordinances. Then there is this idea that it is a sealing ordinance, that children of believers are baptized uh, under the covenant in the hope that they will become Christians, or 
perhaps it would be better to say, in the faith that they will become Christians, that they're kind of engaged to the Lord. Our view is that it's a symbolic ordinance. It's a declaration outwardly of what has happened inwardly. So it's, it's just a symbol. There's nothing magical or mystical in, this, in these waters. It's just a, an outward sign of what has happened inwardly. So you're baptized, says Jesus, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To take the name of somebody indicates an allegiance to that person. So when a a woman marries a man, she takes his name. They're in a, a, a relationship with each other. They're in covenant with each other. And so when you're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you're simply saying, I belong to him. I belong to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He has worked in my life, and he has given me this saving faith. And then the second element is water, and water symbolizes purification. And so when you're baptized, you're saying to a watching world, my sins have been washed away. That theme comes through in the book of Acts, that uh, I'm a new person my, my sins are forgiven, my sins are washed away, not by the baptismal waters, but by the blood of Christ who has died in my place and borne the penalty for my sin. So it symbolizes a new relationship with God, a purification for, for sin, and then um, a, an identification with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. In Romans 6 and verse 4, Paul says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too may live a new life. That's what baptism symbolizes. So when a person goes down into the water, they say, I believe that Christ died. When they're under the water, they say, I believe that Christ was buried. When they come up out of the water, they say, I believe that Christ was raised, Jesus was raised to life. And then when that person goes under the water, they're saying, I have died. I have died to my old life and my old attitudes. All of that has been buried. And he has raised me to live this new life of faith. So it was a symbolic um, uh, ordinance. Uh, let me say just, um, I, I believe baptism is important. I'm a Baptist pastor, but it's not the all-important thing. The all-important thing is what baptism symbolizes. Have you that relationship with God? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, do you belong to Him? Have you taken His name? Have your sins been washed away by putting your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you died to your old self? And has He raised you to live a a new life in Him? That's the most important thing. The symbolism is important, but it's not all important. The all-important thing is what the symbolism symbolizes, which is this living faith in Jesus Christ. So it was a it was a gathered church. It was a baptized church. And then thirdly, notice it was a committed church. Notice uh, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The authorized version says they continued steadfastly. And the truth of the matter, the word is a combination of the ESV and the um, authorized version. The word means to adhere to, 
They glued themselves to the church. They weren't freelancers who ran here, there, and everywhere. Spiritual gypsies who never put their roots down anywhere. Oh no, they glued themselves to the church. And they glued themselves to these um, ministries, if you like, of the church. The apostles' teaching. They believed that the teaching was primary, that the church, the teaching was central to the life of the church. It was, it was crucial for the help of the Christian. That they didn't want to be spiritually malnourished. They didn't want to be stunted in their growth. And just as a baby needs food physically to develop, so the Christian needs teaching to develop spiritually. Now, we don't have apostles today in the church, but we have apostolic teaching. We have the apostolic word, which is the New Testament. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit to the apostles to lead them into all truth, that we might have the truth in our Bibles. And the job of a pastor teacher is to explain what Scripture says so that the Christian, as he comes into the church or she comes into the church, might grow with the food that they receive. The breaking of bread. Now this term breaking of bread is used elsewhere in the New Testament just um, in terms of celebrating a meal. But the definite article is here. It's the breaking of bread. And it's clear that what's uh, in view is this um, uh, the, the meal that was instituted by by Jesus to take us back to Calvary that we might remember continually the great cost of our redemption, that it took the broken body of Jesus and it took the shed blood of Jesus to forgive our sin. We are redeemed by the infinite cost of, of the, 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 the life and death of Jesus that we might be reconciled to God. And in the early church in Acts, they met uh, every day to break bread. So important was that ordinance to them. We meet uh, every week so that we might be focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that he has purchased for us uh, through his broken body and shed blood. It does grieve me. Um, confessing this evening, it, it grieves me that so many Christians can remain indifferent to that ordinance, to the breaking of bread, because there is baptism, which is the ordinance of initiation, and there is the Lord's table, which is the ordinance of celebration, the ongoing one. And God has, or Christ has left us these two things to encourage us and strengthen us in our faith. How, how arrogant we are if we think we can just ignore it and come on our own terms and at our own time. So they committed themselves to the apostles' uh, doctrine, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship. They were a family. That word fellowship means, um, is the Greek word kononia, which means, it's the word from which we get um, community or communion or, or even communism. Uh, uh, and it basically has uh, the idea of sharing together. That when they came into church, they shared together. Now, we see a very practical illustration of that. Remember, people had come from all over the known world. They still had their homes in North Africa and uh, in Asia Minor. But they wanted to devote themselves to the Apostles' Doctrine. They wanted to remain there as long as they could to get instruction. And so all the other Christians that were from Jerusalem rallied round and fed them and looked after them. They shared practically. 
But it wasn't just, that word doesn't just mean uh, practical sharing. It's, it's sharing your life. It's, it's uh, sharing your heart. It's sharing your thoughts. It's, it's coming together. It's worshiping together. It's opening your hearts to one another as, as part of the family of God. That you weep with those who weep and you rejoice with those who rejoice. That you pray for those and you, you show the love of Christ in practical ways. That you are the family of God. And then prayers. Now you'll notice in the ESV there's the plural and it is plural in the original. It's not just devoted themselves to prayer, but to prayers. And I think that's referring to the fact that there were many set times of prayer for the for the this new church that it wasn't just on Wednesday night they met for their midweek but um, they met maybe prior to the services they they spontaneously got into little groups that they might pray to get pray together because they believed that God's work is dependent upon God's spirit and that, as Jesus said, without me you can do nothing, and that we need the energy and the action of the Holy Spirit if the work of God is ever to advance. And if we truly believe that, that it's not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord, we would, we would pray. So they committed themselves to these things. These things were important to them. And I just want to, to ask you, are you committed to the church? Are you in membership of a church? You should be in membership of the church. If you glue yourself to the church, you should be in the church. That is, if you're a true Christian, you should be. These things ought to be important to you. To think that you can get through your Christian life through many dangers, toils, and snares without these things is is arrogant at best and ignorant at worst. And the last thing then is uh, they were an evangelistic church. Just look at the, the end of that, that section in verse uh, 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Uh, just one question. Who, who was... Who was doing the evangelism here? Was it the, the apostles? Well, certainly they preached in the day of Pentecost and there's this great sweep into the kingdom. But by the time uh, of Acts 4, we're told that the church had grown to uh, 5,000 people. And, 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 and the apostles, of course, were busy. If they were devoting them, if the people were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, the apostles then couldn't be doing all the evangelism. Who was doing the evangelism? Well, it was just these ordinary members who had come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were gossiping the gospel. They were sharing with one another what it meant to be a true Christian, what, what Jesus had done in, in their lives. And, and the church was expanding and the church was growing. The Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Saved. You know, people don't like that word today. Sure they don't. Saved. Are you saved? Well, it, is a, it is a biblical word. And it, it means to be rescued from the, the power of sin. It means to experience the forgiveness of sin. It means to be brought into a right relationship with God. 
Are you saved? Are you saved? You, sh- you should be saved. You need to be saved. It's imperative that you are saved. These three young people have been saved. And that's why they've been baptized. They want to tell you, the congregation here tonight in Balamina Baptist Church, that I'm in a new relationship with God. He has saved me. They want to tell you that their sins have all been washed away. They're they're far from perfect. But their sins have been forgiven. And that they're new people. They have died to this old life. And that God has raised them to live a new life. Them to live a new life in Him. So here's this lovely little picture of the church in the New Testament. It was a gathered church. It was a baptized church. It was a a committed church. And it was an evangelistic church. Amen.